Thanks for checking out this video. My name's Kiara, and I hope you enjoy this message from Redemption Church. So we're in this series, it's called Summer Camp, uh, with this idea in mind, that at camp, every good camp, you make friends and you meet Jesus. And so this uh, morning, we're gonna talk about uh, four friends who did something pretty crazy in order to help their friend meet Jesus. And we'll see that in the story this morning. Uh, If you haven't been around the last couple of weeks, what we're doing is we're journeying through the Gospel of Luke, and we're looking at times where Jesus has one-on-one encounters uh, with people. And then the response. Now, so far, these responses have been positive responses. We will get into a couple of responses later where the person meets Jesus and they can't embrace Jesus for who he is. But this morning will be, again, uh, another positive response. What we have this morning in the story is somebody who is absolutely desperate. Someone whose life is confined literally to uh, a mat, Uh, you know, the size of a a normal human being, right? And then maybe a little more distance. That that was their entire life. Uh, To go to the bathroom, somebody had to help them, this person. Uh, To get up and get a drink, someone had to help them. Their entire life was confined to a mat. We're going to see what happens when this person meets Jesus. So we're in Luke 5. Let me set the setting for you a little bit uh, this morning so that we can all kind of have a picture of what happened. Uh, We're going to start in verse 17 through verse 26, uh, week four in your binders if you have those. Here's the setting. We're going to see Jesus today in a home. Previously, we've seen Jesus in the wilderness where in his humanity, he resisted the temptations of the devil, uh, emerging out of the wilderness, prepared for the work of ministry ahead. Then we saw uh, Jesus in the synagogue, and uh, we've seen him there and preaching in the, uh, the synagogue. Then we saw Jesus uh, in a place of business, which happened to be a boat on the beach. And so we've seen Jesus proclaiming the gospel and beginning his ministry in a religious environment, the synagogue, in a business environment, the boat. And now we're going to see it in a personal environment in someone's home, reminding us that the gospel and that our Christian life is not just confined to Sunday morning. It's not just confined to one area of life, uh, but when we experience the gospel, it then goes out into every part of our lives. And so here we see Jesus now in something even more personal. He's in someone's home. Now, some scholars think he's in Peter's home, uh, Simon Peter, uh, the famous apostle. Uh, it is not 100% known, but that's the best conjecture. He's in a town called Capernaum, and Jesus is in this uh, house, you know, probably 1,000 square feet or so. And there's people that are pressing in all around him. And he's there, and he's doing what Jesus does, teaching says, on one of those days, as he was teaching, we've learned this already, Jesus was a teacher. This was his primary objective, was to go and to preach or to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of the good news of his arrival. And so Jesus is sitting in an ancient Palestinian home, and there's people that have filled the house and pressed all in, so much so that nobody else could get in. So maybe he was sitting in the you know, living room, what we would call it, and there were people around, and uh, they typically had some type of like patio or something, and so maybe it went all the way out there to the front door, and as people were continuing to gather around, no one else could get in 
to the house. It was that jam-packed. I mean, Jesus had become pretty notorious at this point. His teaching had an authority that no one else had ever seen. He had performed some miracles, and now people were flocking to him because they wanted to hear his words. And on that night or day, as Jesus is teaching, as the crowd is filling in, we're going to see one primary mission of Jesus, two perspectives on that mission that'll lead us to three different ideas on each one of those perspectives and concluding with four applications for ourselves. If you're taking notes, that we're, that's where we're gonna go this morning. So there's the setting. Jesus is teaching. Let's see the first group of people that are there around Jesus. Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And so you have these religious teachers that are there and they've traveled a pretty good distance just to oppose Jesus. And so they're there and they're the first perspective. And it's a perspective that is not exclusive to, uh, you know, first century AD. It's a perspective that still exists today. One translation says is they were sitting there or they were sitting near Jesus. And we see this first perspective or this first response to Jesus. We'll call it the religious perspective. And as we look through this, we see three things in this religious perspective. The first is they're sitting near or they're sitting by Jesus. Now, there's another common phrase uh, that was used back then. Uh, if you submitted yourself to a rabbi and this rabbi's teaching, then it would say that you were sitting underneath the rabbi, sitting underneath his teaching means you had submitted. Here, the religious person is in close proximity to Jesus. Modern day, they attend church. They know the truth of scripture. They've probably memorized a couple of verses. They're pretty good moral people. They know what is right and wrong, and they sit near Jesus, but never submit or sit under Jesus's teaching. They know Jesus. They know Jesus intellectually. They know facts about the Bible, but their heart has never been melted by the gospel. So they sit close by. We're going to see later on that these individuals actually uh, are, are not just sitting close by to Jesus, but they're actually uh, inhibit people from getting to Jesus. See, religious people in this context, religious people have a way of actually deterring people from Jesus, being a barrier. In this case, they're a physical barrier, right? They, they can't get into the room because they've taken all the good seats. They have no intention of submitting to Jesus. They have no intention of worshiping Jesus as king, but they love the seats of honor and they love to, uh, in this case, they're stopping, physically stopping people from getting to Jesus. Our religion can be one of the biggest deterrents to people getting to Jesus. Religion that um, speaks or claims Christianity, but does so without the grace and the love of Jesus. Religion uh, that is uh, more known as uh, judgmental, angry, or hypocritical. 
than the grace and the love of Jesus. And so here we see religion, these religious people stopping somebody in need, a true seeker from getting to Jesus. The third thing that we see in the religious people, um, eventually, spoiler alert, someone's gonna get healed. And when the person gets healed, instead of celebrating, they begin to ask questions of doctrine. Another sign of religion is no concern for the person in need. More concern with, um, with, with doctrinal truth in this particular case, more concerned um, uh, uh, maybe with facts than they are with people who are hurting. The first perspective here uh, of people, and listen, this is a sign of people who are always going to be near Jesus. This didn't stop in this room. This continued to happen throughout his ministry, and it's continued to happen through the 2,000 years of church, that there will be people who are near to Jesus, but never submit their heart to the gospel. And these people who will be near to Jesus out of their action or the way they interact in church or the things that they elevate above the truth of the gospel will actually stop people from experiencing the true Jesus. And often they will care more about rigidity than about hurting people. If you find yourself, by the way, in that camp at all this morning, near Jesus, hearing truth each and every week, but not yet a heart melted by the gospel. Repent. Let the grace of Jesus, the love of Christ on the cross finally break that down. How do you know it's broken down? How do you know? Because you'll turn into the second perspective. The act of turning into the second perspective has revealed that you've moved from the first to the second. So let's look at the second one. The second perspective is the perspective of faith. In this particular story, it's embodied by four friends. Four friends and then the fifth friend. The fifth friend, we're told, is the paralyzed man. As I said at the beginning, when he wanted to go to the bathroom, someone had to help him. When he needed a drink, someone had to help him. He existed and lived in a culture where a physical um, ailment or weakness uh, meant to people in their minds that the person must have a spiritual problem. In other words, sin equals physical sickness. And so he would have carried shame. He would have carried guilt, embarrassment. Ah, that's the paralyzed man. I wonder what he did wonder how he sinned and how bad of a sin must it have been if he's that physically incapable. This would have been the culture. And this guy is completely helpless. Save one thing. Four things. Four friends. Four friends. And these four friends, they hear of the teaching of Jesus Nowhere in this text or its equivalent text in Mark and Matthew does it tell us that the paralyzed man actually wanted to be taken to Jesus. We can't be told that he doesn't because it doesn't say that he didn't, but it never indicates that he wanted to. 
It doesn't say, and the paralyzed man begged his friends, take me to Jesus. What it says is the four friends just decided, we're taking you to Jesus and you're on a mat and you can't do anything about it. And so when Jesus is in teaching and the stories of this Nazarene have begun to grow, the Lord, the legend of it has begun to pick up. And uh, they said, we got to get him to Jesus, whatever it takes. And so uh, when Jesus gets into town and, and they know what house he's at, they pick him up. And they begin to carry them and they get to the front of the house and they're uh, carrying them around and they're trying to get through and there's so many people there. There's no way they're going to get their friend to Jesus. There's no way to get through the line and the group of people teaching us the first thing, by the way, about evangelism. And that is this, there will always be obstacles to evangelism. There will always be obstacles to getting people to Jesus. It will never be the perfect time in the perfect place with the perfect words coming out of your mouth. You will never have all of the knowledge that you think you need to have. There will always be obstacles to getting people to Jesus. You know why? Two reasons. One, because of our sinful, fearful self. We're always going to come up with a reason on why now's not the right time to say something. We're always going to come up with the excuse on, well, it's not appropriate in this setting. We're always uh, going to hear a little voice that says, no, if you do it now, they're going to reject you and you won't be friends anymore. And you've been this person's friend for so long and you don't want to give up the friendship because eventually someday in the right moment, all of the stars are going to line and everything's going to be perfect. And then you can tell them about Jesus. So don't give it up now. And then that moment never comes. There will always be obstacles to getting people to Jesus. Second reason is because the devil loves the desperate person loves their desperation, loves their guilt, loves their shame, loves their despair, and will do whatever he can in his evil power to make sure that that person never gets to Jesus. And here, the devil's using one of his favorite tactics. Let's just put a whole bunch of religious people between him and Jesus. And so now, there are always obstacles to people getting to Jesus. There's something else we learn in this story. Desperation overcomes obstacles. Desperation overcomes obstacles. Imagine how many times these four friends had sat around. I wish there was something we could do for you, man. We tried this healer. We tried that. We tried that tactic. We've given you a new mat. It's more comfortable done everything we can to make the situation that's bad better. I wonder for how long a desperation in these four friends had just built to the point when they first heard about Jesus, I wonder which one it was, ran back to the other three. This is something new. There's something new that's brewing. I've been hearing the stories. Maybe if we get him there, something will happen. To the point, to the point of desperation that when they showed up and they saw all the people that were stopping them from getting him to Jesus, they didn't walk around the other way and say, I guess it's not the right time and the right place, so we'll just hold it off to next time and hopefully Jesus will swing back around town. No, their desperation urged them, compelled them, moved them to do something crazy. 
And so in ancient Palestine, there would have been steps on the outside of the house that would have led up to the top. And so they carried their friend up to the top and they got themselves on top of the roof. And underneath, Jesus is holding court. He's teaching. Who knows what he was teaching about? (laughs) Maybe he was at this incredible moment. He was like, and you know, Psalm 23 that talks about the good shepherd. That's me. Could have been anywhere teaching through the Old Testament to these guys. As he's teaching and the crowd is listening in and four friends are on a roof. They look down and the gospel of Luke describes it as tiles. Um, Other texts indicate maybe it's like sticks and figs, whatever. They just begin to peel back the roof, risking their reputations probably risking some type of punishment, like criminal activity. I mean, I would imagine even back then it's illegal to rip somebody's roof off. Certainly risking, oh, you are the crazy guys that did that? Probably risking money uh, as they're going to have to use resources to repair the roof. And so they're, they're risking their lives, their reputation, their resources. And and they start peeling away the roof. And underneath is Jesus, the religious leaders, his disciples, and a crowd of people who I imagine in the moment stopped and looked up what is going on. And they're peeling away. And I'm sure little fragments were falling to the ground, landing on Jesus' beard, right? And and then they're all looking up. And all they see are these four faces peering over, dropping on a rope, a mat with a guy on it. And they just drop them down on the mat in front of Jesus. Like, what now? By the way, that what now is it's a reminder for us. Your job is to get them to Jesus. Let him handle it once they get there. See, one of the reasons evangelism is scary to us is because we think when the person finally gets to Jesus, we're the one who has to forgive them or heal them. You don't have to do anything, but get them to Jesus. He does all the hard work. And so they finally drop him down. And they're there. And it says next that the Jesus sees their faith. Their faith. See, there are always obstacles to getting people to Jesus. Desperation overcomes obstacles. And three, how do you know that you've moved from perspective one to perspective two? Because the faith of friends saves friends. Some of you are here this morning because your mom prayed for you, because your dad prayed for you, because your grandma prayed for you. You're here because your friend wouldn't let you go. And no matter how far you ran, they just kept pulling back and they kept praying you back. Now, can, can we save somebody else? Now, I'm not saying that. I'm saying God has a mechanism for salvation and the mechanism and the means he uses are people to advance his gospel. The faith of friends saves friends. And desperate friends will overcome any obstacle to get their friend to Jesus. And so they drop him down. 
He says, Jesus saw their faith and Jesus looks at them and he says, hey, your sins are forgiven you. Actually, he says, man, your sins are forgiven you. And I wonder if that was like, man, or if it was like, man, I don't know. Your sins are forgiven you. He says that your sins are forgiven you, which by the way, news alert, Jesus, that's not why they came. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Are you kidding me? A dude literally just got um, dropped from the roof. And their first question is, well, let's doctrinally try and figure this out for a second. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, might be the scariest verse in scripture, by the way, because it means Jesus knows our hearts. When Jesus, that's like a side note. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them. He says, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I told you there was two perspectives, but there was one primary mission. There is it. There it is right there. Jesus just summed up his whole reason for existence on earth, to let people know that he has the authority to forgive sins. He has the authority to forgive. Why did Jesus come? To let you and I know that he has the authority to forgive sins. That's why he came. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So Jesus looks at him, and what he does first, what he does first and primary is forgive the man of his sins. He gets in a very quick little theological debate where he blasts the uh, Pharisees, wrong doctrine, and then he slides back in and he sees the man in urgent physical need and he says, and be healed. told you at the beginning, there are four applications to this text that are imperative for us as followers of Jesus. Here's application one. To remember that our primary mission as followers of Jesus is that people would know that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. This is our primary mission that people would know that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. That's why we meet every Sunday. That's why you have the job you have around the people that you work with. That's why you're on the sports team that you're on in high school. That's why you're gonna be dormed with the person you're gonna be dormed with. We have one primary mission and objective as followers of Jesus, that people would know he has the authority to forgive sins. Secondly, though, we see this, that where we are able, where we are able to help people with urgent physical needs, and we can, we always ought to. That when the person's hungry and we can feed them, we should that when they're thirsty and they need water, we should get it. That when they're cold, we should give shelter. And when they need a hug, we should give them a hug. 
Encouragement, encouragement. That wherever there is an urgent, physical, practical need as Christians and we have the power and the ability to uh, help, we should. It's application two. Third is this. That you and I must have the same creativity, persistence, confidence, and sacrifice in our evangelism as these four friends had. It's application three. We must have the same creativity. I mean, these guys uh, had one goal to get their friend to Jesus. I mean, in that moment, at least on that day, it was driving everything that they did and they rolled up and there were obstacles. And instead of walking back home, they said, let's figure this out. And some of us probably need to have, let's figure it out conversations, either with each other or somebody in our life or just with God to say, Lord, I don't know what to do anymore. But the same creativity that these four friends showed in getting their friend to Jesus is a creativity that we should ask God for. God, help me to understand. I mean, later on in the Bible, Paul would write, I'll do anything. One time he said, man, I'd rather... I'd rather that, that I be harmed than they be harmed if they'll just meet Jesus. He said one time, I become all things to all people so that they might meet Jesus. Man, Daniel, when he was a little boy in the Old Testament, he gets dropped off right in the middle of Babylon. Evil place. Bunch of Christians are like, let's go hide out in the woods. Let's just go hide out in the woods and we'll have our own little community out in the woods. <laughs> Not Daniel. Daniel goes right into the heart of evil Babylon. He learns all of their tricks. He learns everything that they learn and he's perfectly positioned to advance the gospel at the right time. The same creativity that these guys had, we must have. We must have it as individuals. We must have it as a church. And you know what? By the way, when churches start getting creative, you know what happens? The first perspective always stands up and starts talking. The first perspective always pops up and goes, well, this is not how I grew up in church. Yeah, and that church is dead. And they shut their doors. Go ahead and open them back up. You can have a little party by yourself. We're going to go see some people meet Jesus. The same creativity that these guys had, we must have. Why? Because desperation overcomes obstacles. The same persistence that those guys had same persistence. We're not giving up. I'm not running away. We're not waiting until he swings back into town again. We're doing this now. I know you've prayed. Pray again. I know you've shared. Share again. I know you've invited. Invite again. I know you've told your story. Tell him again. The same confidence I don't know what that face looked like when they opened that up and they looked down. It was probably a mix of like, this is going to be good. And kind of like, hey, man, see what you got. But it, gee, the, the story said they saw their faith. 
They saw their faith. In other words, they knew, man, we just got to get this guy to Jesus. We just got to get him to Jesus. Have some confidence in your evangelism because you know that the transformation of the human heart doesn't come through you, it comes through Jesus and the power of his Holy Spirit. And then lastly, the same sacrifice. The same sacrifice. These guys sacrificed their reputations. They sacrificed their money. They sacrificed their time. They sacrificed their energy. They laid it all on the line to get their one friend to Jesus. What will you and I sacrifice for people to get to Jesus? Reputation, Paul says, I preach to one audience. Money, you can buy it now for here. It's gonna fade away, turn into nothing. Or you can invest it in people getting to Jesus. Your time, you really got something better. What will we sacrifice to get people to Jesus? And then lastly, fourth application. Let me read it to you because it's the fun one. And immediately he rose up before them. This is after Jesus said, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. He says, immediately he rose up before them and he picked up what, had been lying, what he had been lying on and he went home glorifying God. This might mess with some of y'all's doctrine, but the dude did not leave the mat on the ground and walk out. And a lot of times what we would prefer to say is, oh, he came and he was new. And so he just left the mat there. Well, I don't know if you've ever been in the real world, but when you go through hell, even when you meet Jesus, hell still happened. It still hurts sometimes. It still affects you. I know you've been made in Jesus. But that divorce or that premature death or, 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 or that whatever, you fill in your own blank, that still hurts. And that man took his mat with them. And I bet he was walking down the street and people looked at him and they looked at the mat and they looked at him and they looked at the mat and they looked at him. They said, what happened? I met Jesus. And now the mat that was the picture of my despair is now the picture of my delivery. There are people and they're giving us Jesus. This is what he does in his stories. He gives us a physical, literal picture so we understand a spiritual reality. How are people like Jesus? or without Jesus, how are people without Jesus, spiritually? They're as desperate as a paralyzed man in ancient Palestine. That's how desperate they are. That's how much despair they're in. That's how doomed they are. That's how much shame and guilt. And you and I have a beautiful, beautiful role. We get to bring them to Jesus and see the despair turn into delivery. Oh, I didn't even get to the fourth point. Here it is. 
And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with all saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Application four, we will celebrate every life that is changed by Jesus. Every life. Every life. Every person that walked in one way, not knowing who Jesus was, and walked out changed and transformed by the gospel. We'll celebrate it. We'll dance. Some of y'all don't dance. You can clap. Some of y'all don't clap. You can do your silent head nod. But we will celebrate every person who meets Jesus. And we'll thank God that he would use us in the process of seeing people come to Jesus. If you find yourself thinking that church, the collective body of Christ, is anything better to do than introducing people to Jesus, you need to reread your scriptures. We've been called as the body of Christ to a collective mission of, yes, training up followers of Jesus, but training up followers of Jesus starts with bringing people to Jesus. Thanks for watching this video. If you want to learn more about our church, go ahead and click the link in the description or head on over to experienceredemption.com. Have a great week, guys.